Jesus said of the Lord's table, do this in remembrance of me. And the bread and the cup are vivid pictures. They're symbols for us of his body and his blood. The sacrifice that he made on the cross for our sins to save us from the wrath of God. And as we come to the Lord's table, I want us to reflect this morning on Jesus Christ, our substitute. Jesus Christ, our substitute. I want us to be reminded this morning that the message of the gospel is a message of substitution. It is Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has taken the wrath that we deserve, that he paid the debt that we deserve to pay, that he stood condemned in our place as a substitute for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The message of the gospel is a message of substitution. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, the whole pith and marrow of Christianity lies in the doctrine of substitution. The way of salvation is by Christ becoming a substitute for guilty man. And Jerry Bridges has put it this way, no attempt to reform the church can succeed if it departs in any way from the centrality of the message that our sinless Christ actually died on a real cross. He was the sin bearer for those who are united to Christ by faith in his substitutionary sacrifice and righteousness. This is the centerpiece of the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian faith. It is substitution. And if you read through the Bible, you know that through the Old Testament, the doctrine of substitution was foreshadowed and anticipated. In the blood of bulls and goats and lambs were slaughtered innocent lives to take the sinner's place, to die for the sinner's sins. And yet, as Hebrews tells us, those animals could never take away sin. They were just pictures. They foreshadowed 
a coming substitute who would once and for all decisively take away our sins and stand in our place. And that substitute we know, his name is Jesus Christ. He has come. And he really has died. And he really has stood in our place as our substitute. We look at the message of substitution from this side of the cross. We rejoice in all that Christ has accomplished for us and the blessings that we receive through his work. And yet, for a moment this morning, I want us to go to a time prior to the, from the cross. A time where the message of substitution was foreshadowed and anticipated at the beginning of Christ's ministry. And that scene is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Let's read this together. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel records, you know that this is a very simple scene. It is simply the baptism of Jesus Christ. The baptism of Jesus Christ. You might be saying, well, Dan, what is the baptism of Jesus have to do with the doctrine of substitution? Well, we'll see that in a moment. But I just want you to note here that we are at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, This is the start. This is his commissioning in his role as the public servant of God. For 30 years, he's been in obscurity. He's been growing up in a carpenter's home in a little place called Nazareth. And here is his public appearance on the stage of redemptive history. And the very first event in his public ministry is his baptism. It's the very first thing that Jesus did when he stepped out onto the stage as he was baptized under John the Baptist's ministry. Now, if you're a member of our church, you don't need any introduction to baptism. You're very familiar with baptism. If you've been in our church, you have been baptized. We're going to have a baptism service next week in which we're going to take believers who profess their faith publicly, we're going to take them to a very cold pool early in the morning, and we're going to dunk them deep into the water. And um, I love it. Sometimes we keep them down for an extra second or two just to make sure they're all the way down in the water. Baptism is 
simply a ceremony where a person is immersed into water. Very simple picture. You stand in the water and you're dunked. You're submerged. You're put completely under. The word baptized, uh, Greek word is baptizo. It just means to immerse, to dip, to die, or to submerge. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with water. You could be baptized into a lot of things. You could be immersed into... I was thinking this week, my children take their french fries and baptize them into ketchup. Just dunk them in. So that's completely covered. The Bible talks about being baptized in the Holy Spirit or being baptized with fire. We know believers' baptism to be being immersed into water. When I was baptized 17 years ago, I stood up at a church service and gave public testimony of my faith and my pastor dunked me all the way into the water. Baptism is a symbol of the believer's identification with Jesus Christ. It is a vivid picture that as believers, we have been literally immersed into the person of Jesus Christ. Our lives have been submerged into who he is and to all that he has done. There is such union with the believer in Christ that it can't be pictured in any other way except complete submersion into water because that is how united we are with Jesus Christ. He is in us. We are in him. We have been immersed into his person We've been immersed into his work. We have been immersed into his life, his death, his resurrection, so that because we are one with him, we too have died. And we have risen to live a new life in Christ. That all is pictured in the work of this one picture, baptism. And that is why our hearts are so filled with joy when a believer is baptized. Now, the baptism of John was a little bit different than our baptism today. The mode was the same. It was immersion. John was baptizing in the Jordan River, and the word is the same. He was immersing people into the waters of the Jordan But the meaning was a little bit different because obviously Jesus Christ hadn't died and he hadn't risen again. So the fullness of that meaning hadn't come in yet. Instead, John's baptism was chapter 3, verse 11, a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism signifying repentance. This was John's ministry as he came preaching repentance. His message was very simple. Chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was the herald of the Messiah. He came to prepare the way for Messiah. He came preaching this hard message of sin and damnation and wrath and judgment 
And when people responded to John's ministry, they repented. They confessed their sins before God. And as a visual symbol of their repentance, John baptized them into the Jordan River. And what they were saying by being baptized is they were saying is, I'm a sinner. I need wholesale cleansing from my sin. I need repentance. I need to turn from my iniquity. My whole life, my whole heart, my whole body, everything is filled with sin and I need to repent. And that is what John's baptism was picturing, was symbolizing. When people were baptized under his ministry, when they were baptized under John's ministry, they were saying something very simple. They were saying, I am a sinner. In chapter 3, verse 5 says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It was a very simple message. It was a very simple baptism. They were saying, I am a sinner and I need to repent. And to represent that, they were immersed into the water in the Jordan River. Now, if you understand what John's baptism was all about, and you understand what his baptism meant, you can have only one question as you look at this passage. And that question is this. What on earth is Jesus Christ doing being baptized? What on earth is going on here? John's baptism was a baptism for sinners. Why is Jesus coming to John for baptism? John's baptism was a baptism for people who were saying, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. Jesus Christ had no sin. He was holy and spotless and blameless. He had no sins to confess. He had no sins to repent of. Why on earth does Jesus begin his public ministry by being baptized when John's baptism was a baptism for sinners? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, we look at this passage and we would say, Jesus, you don't need to be baptized. That's for sinners. You're not a sinner. Why is Jesus being baptized in this passage? Now, if you have that question, just be encouraged because John, John didn't understand it either. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him. John was like, time out, hold on, stop. Jesus, this, this isn't right. You don't need to be baptized. Don't you understand what my baptism is about? Don't you understand it's a baptism of repentance? Don't you understand it's a baptism for sinners? You're not a sinner. 
John, imperfect tense here, repeatedly tried to stop Jesus from being baptized. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. Don't you understand? I'm the sinner. You're not. I belong in the water. You belong in the place of a righteous man. John didn't understand the baptism of Jesus either, and he's the one who administered it. So why is Jesus undergoing a baptism for sinners? Well, throughout the ages, people have tried to give reasons why Jesus would go through John's baptism. Some say, a lot of these reasons are really ridiculous reasons. Some say like his mom wanted him to be baptized. You know, it's kind of like every mom wants their kid to be baptized. Jesus' mom wanted Jesus to be baptized. He was like, okay, mom, I'll, I'll be baptized. So to make his mom happy and make his brothers happy, he was baptized. I mean, he's nowhere in the Bible. It's a pretty ridiculous reason. Um, other people say that uh, John, Jesus was trying to pat John on the back. It's kind of like if your friend owns a hamburger joint and you want everyone to eat at that hamburger joint. So you go to the joint and you get a hamburger. He said, mm, see, look, everyone, it's such a good hamburger. Everyone, go eat the hamburger at this place. And it was like Jesus was saying to everyone, hey, look, John's baptism, good baptism. I like it. Go do it. That's another, not in the Bible, and it's purely uh, just a ridiculous reason. Some people say that Jesus was being baptized because he wanted to fulfill the Old Testament law. It was part of his fulfilling the law. And um, there's only one problem with that, is that John's baptism wasn't in the Old Testament law. It was really a unique event at one time in Israel's history. And it wasn't equivalent to the priestly acts of washing in the Old Testament, which some people say that it was. Why was Jesus baptized? I believe that the simplest explanation is the best one. And the simplest explanation is to just simply look at the picture. What is the picture here? The picture is Jesus is standing in the place where only sinners ought to stand. That's the picture. Jesus is standing in the place of sinners. Jesus is standing in the place where only wicked men ought to be. Where only the condemned, the guilty, the unclean ought to stand in this water. And Jesus, though he had no sin, is willingly going into the water and taking the sinner's place. The picture of Jesus' baptism is simply this, Jesus taking the place of wicked sinners. I believe that 
Jesus Christ began his public ministry exactly the same way that he ended it. By taking the place of sinners, by identifying with sinners, by standing in the place where only the guilty ought to stand. I believe that the baptism of Jesus was his public proclamation of why he had come to this earth. He had not come merely to be a good moral teacher. He had not come merely to set a good spiritual example. He had come to be a substitute for sin and to take the sinner's place, though he himself was without sin. I believe that the baptism of Jesus was a picture of substitution. And you'll note here, it's not just Jesus taking the place where John ought to be, but it's John standing in the place where Jesus ought to be. That was John's complaint. Jesus, the roles are reversed here. I'm in the place of a righteous man, and I'm not righteous. You're in the place of sinners, and you're not a sinner. It was a picture of substitution. What John was saying to Jesus was basically this, Jesus, what are you doing in the waters of baptism? You don't belong there. I belong there. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what our hearts cry out when we see the cross? Don't we see Jesus on the cross, dying a sinner's death, facing the horrific wrath of God? And don't we say to him, Jesus, you don't belong there. I belong there. I'm the one who ought to die because of my sins. I'm the one who ought to face the wrath of the Father. I'm the one who should be condemned. And Jesus says to us in the gospel, don't you understand? This is why I've come. This is the reason why I've come to this earth, is to be a substitute, is to die in your place for your sins. John MacArthur writes this, the supreme element in the baptism of Jesus was the identification of the sinless Son of God with sinners. The first thing Jesus ever did when he stepped out of obscurity and stepped into the limelight was declare the primary reason for which he came. And that was to identify himself with sinners. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who was without sin went down into a baptism that was only for sinners. And he was saying as loud and clear as ever he could say, I take my place with sinners. This is the glory of substitution. It's the great exchange. 
Jesus takes my sin and I receive his righteousness. Jesus takes my death and I receive his life. Jesus takes my curse and I receive his blessing. Jesus takes my hell and I receive his heaven. Jesus takes my rejection, I receive his acceptance. It's the greatest news that this world has ever heard. It's the most amazing news that this world has ever experienced. That Jesus has come to be our substitute. Author J.R. Miller has written, The shadow of the cross fell on the green banks and on the flowing river Jordan. And it fell also across the gentle and holy soul of Jesus as he stood there. Jesus knew what his baptism meant, to what it had reduced him, what his end would be. Yet knowing all, he voluntarily came to be baptized, catch this, thus accepting the mission of Redemption. And Bible teacher Peter Lewis, in his work, The Glory of Christ, said this, He has come to undergo John's baptism of repentance, not because he is a sinner needing repentance, but because he is the servant's son whose decreed task is to identify with sinners and to bear their sins in his own person. Here, in the waters of alien baptism, the sinless Son of God takes his place alongside sinners as he will one day take his place instead of them. So Jesus told John, John, this fulfills God's righteousness. In what sense does it fulfill God's righteousness? It's simply, it's simply the will of God. He said, John, this is the will of God for my life. This is the Father's will that I go to the cross. This is the Father's mission that he has given to me that I be a substitute for sin. And in verse 16 and 17, both the Spirit and the Father express their affirmation of the Son's mission. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father expresses his delight not just in the Son's character and not just in the Son's attributes and not just in the Son's perfections, but to get this, he expresses his delight in the Son's mission, in the Son's purpose, in the sacrifice that the Son would make on our behalf. As I um, prepared this message and reflected on the Word of God, many of your lives were on my heart and on my mind and in my prayers. And I know that many of you come this morning and you have many burdens. And as, uh, as your shepherds, we carry those burdens with you in prayer and in our hearts. I know that many of you will come and you're burdened with relationships. Uh, many of you are burdened with your family life, maybe your job or your school or 
your finances. I know many of you new moms are on my heart because you just want a good night's sleep. You just want two or three hours of sleep. That's all you want in life. And it's tough. It's difficult. And you may be listening to this message and you may be saying, Dan, I agree with this and I love the doctrine of substitution and I love the cross and I love Jesus' baptism and I love communion, but I just don't see how it relates to anything I'm going through in life. And I just wanted to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that, that you need Jesus Christ Whatever it is you're going through right now, you need Jesus. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And whether it is your finances or relationships or family life or lack of sleep, whatever it is, the simple encouragement is you need Christ. But if I could make it real specific, You don't just need him as a good moral teacher. You don't just need him as someone who just tells you things to do and then you just do them. You don't just need him as a good spiritual example. You don't just need him as someone you say, oh, I want to live the way he did. And so I'll do what he did. But you find you're always falling short and you can't live the way Jesus did. No, brothers and sisters, you need him as your substitute. Whatever's going on in your life right now, whatever you're facing, you need to trust in Christ that he is your substitute. That God accepts you not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That God loves you not because of how you've lived, but because of how Jesus has lived. That God blesses you not because of how good you are, but because of how good Jesus has been. And because Jesus is your substitute, the roles are reversed. He took your place, and now you stand in the place that he has earned for you. That's the gospel. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way. When you are stripped of everything but hope in Christ, when you are prepared to come empty-handed and take Christ to be your all and to be yourself nothing at all, then you may look to Christ and you may say, Thou dear, thou bleeding Lamb of God, thy griefs were endured for me. By thy stripes I am healed. By thy sufferings I am pardoned. And then see what peace of mind you will have. For if Christ has died for you, you cannot be lost. God will not punish twice for one thing. If God punished Christ for your sin, he will never punish you. Payment, God's justice, cannot twice demand. First at the bleeding surety's hand. And again mind. Don't you understand, brothers and sisters? God, he can't reject us without rejecting his son. He will never reject his son. 
Because he loves his son. Because this is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. One final thought as we come to the Lord's table. As you go through the life of Jesus Christ and he ministered three more years after his baptism and then he went the road to the cross and gave up his life. But as you read through the life of Christ, you will never find Jesus referring back to this baptism again. It doesn't seem like he talked about it. It doesn't seem like he discussed it. It doesn't seem like he had any Q&As about it with his disciples. He never really discusses his baptism into water again the rest of his earthly ministry. But two times he does discuss being personally baptized. But when he talked about his baptism, he didn't refer looking back to his baptism into water. But he spoke of looking forward And he spoke of his baptism, his immersion into the fiery judgment of God's wrath at the cross where Jesus Christ would literally be plunged into the depths of sorrow and sin and judgment and hell as a substitute for sin. Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Matthew 10, verse 38, to James and John, he said, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Those are what we call dry verses. There's no water in those verses. He's using that word baptism to describe an immersion that would take place. A complete submersion into the fiery judgment of God's holy anger against sin. And Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until... It is accomplished. We can put it this way. That the first baptism of Jesus Christ into water at the beginning of his ministry was a foreshadow of the second baptism of Jesus Christ at the end of his ministry. The first baptism was baptism into water. The second baptism was baptism into into the wrath of a holy God. And the end result is this. For believers, because Jesus Christ has been baptized into our death, we have, by His grace, been baptized, immersed, submerged, plunged into his life, into his grace, into his forgiveness, into his joy. Romans 6, verse 3, 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, who have been immersed into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Another dry verse, no water here. It's talking about immersion into Jesus Christ. We as believers have been immersed into him. We have been immersed into his death. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christianity isn't just you come to Jesus and he sprinkles a little bit of blessing on you. It isn't even that we take a little bit of Jesus and we pour it on you. It is that the Holy Spirit in the miracle of regeneration takes your sinful life and he sovereignly plunges you into the blessings of Jesus Christ. That you are covered by his grace because he was baptized into your sorrow and your wrath. I know that many times when we come to the Lord's table, we come and we confess our sins. And we're right to do that because uh, Paul instructed us, 1 Corinthians, not to take of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. We're right to examine ourselves, to confess our sins before God. But if I can encourage you this morning as you come to the Lord's table, I want, I want us to confess a very specific sin. I want us to confess our sin of unbelief. I want us to confess that the reason why our hearts are weak, the reason why we, we're so prone to sin, the reason why we put other things before Jesus Christ is because we simply don't believe that the gospel of God's grace is as, is as good as it really is. We don't believe that Jesus Christ took all of our sins. And the flip side is we don't believe that that God now, because of what Christ has done, looks at us with the same acceptance that he looked at the sun in the waters of baptism. We don't believe that God the Father looks at us and says, you are my beloved child, and I am well pleased with you. Because when I look at you, I see the righteousness of my son. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. and I want you to take a minute. And before the Lord, would you take this time to confess, to confess your sin of unbelief. And to look toward Christ, your substitute, who was baptized into your death, that you may be baptized into his life.
who was immersed into the fiery judgment that we deserved, that we may be immersed into his grace and blessing and forgiveness. Would you come and ask God to give you fresh eyes to see the beauty of the gospel in a new way that would transform your life and heart. Give praise to our Savior who is our substitute.